0: This is the Daily Savile Podcast for Monday, May 15th. I'm Virginia Allen. This year already, three big banks have failed in America. But financial expert and investor David Bonson says Americans need not worry about the safety of the money in their bank accounts. Why? Because Bonson says that the recent bank failures that we have seen this year are very different from the financial crisis of 2008. Bonson joins me on the show today to explain why these bank failures aren't necessarily of concern to the average American, but why we do need to pay attention to them and how they're affecting financial markets. He also shares some common financial advice that he says most Americans don't understand. Stay tuned for our conversation up next. And I'll never forget just being fearful for my life. Letting phone calls, emails, protests outside the shop. I remember sleeping on the floor of my bedroom, seeing the headlights driving by, just wondering if someone was gonna carry out on some of the threats that I had seen in emails. Here I am on this journey, hopefully to protect not only my right to speak freely, but everyone's right to do just the same. You've just listened to a sneak peek from our brand new documentary about Lori Smith, She's a web designer who the state of Colorado wants to force into creating LGBTQ websites and other content that directly violates her beliefs. We spoke with her and with Christian Baker Jack Phillips about their cases and about what's at stake for the First Amendment. You can find the documentary on The Daily Signal's YouTube channel or in the show notes for this episode. We are joined today by David Bonson, the founder of the investment company The Bonson Group, which manages over $4 billion in client assets. David, thanks for being here today. Well, thank, thank you so much for having me. Can you uh, start us off today by just sharing a little bit of your background, what you do with the Bonson Group, and uh, how, how that work really contributes uh, to, to the overall mission that you have uh, in really bringing awareness to the common public about our financial system?
1: Sure. So I um, started the firm uh, a little over eight years ago. And so we have six offices, 56 employees. We manage about four and a quarter billion dollars. And we're working with regular people, private wealth clients, doing their tax planning, estate planning, and investing their money. I'm particularly passionate about something called dividend growth investing, where I've dedicated my career to buying individual companies that are growing dividends for people, I wrote a book on it. But see, all of this work in financial markets is really part and parcel of my commitment to a free enterprise system. I spent 10 years as a managing director at Morgan Stanley and I was a senior VP at UBS for years before then. So I come from Wall Street. I believe very much in a need for Wall Street, a need for financial markets, and I'm tired of a Wall Street that doesn't defend itself, that Mm. doesn't defend uh, a free market system like the one that has made Wall Street so big and powerful. And so I am quite passionate about the concept of a free and virtuous society. I'm a movement conservative. And the beauty of not being uh, employed at Morgan Stanley now is I can say whatever I want whenever I want and I have no intention of firing myself <laughs> or canceling myself. So. I'm on the board at national review i do a lot of writing there and i'm just otherwise uh deeply involved with various conservative uh, political and economic projects
0: well i'm excited to have you say whatever you want during our conversation here today let's jump in and talk about some of the banking activity that we have seen in america just since the start of the year we've watched as three pretty large American banks have closed. We have Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and of course the latest First Republic Bank have all gone under. Did these banks fail for the same reason or different reasons?
1: There's a similarity between the three banks and their closings. Uh, There's almost nothing in common at all with these three banks closing relative to all the 2008 Closing. So I'd point out that in the financial crisis, we had over 120 commercial banks drop. And I'm not even talking about the big Wall Street firms that everybody thinks about with the financial crisis, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, all of that stuff. We had 120 bank banks with you know branches on the street corner type of thing go down. And we've had three so far this year, but they're pretty good size um and all of them essentially this year have closed for something to do with interest rates going higher they've had almost no credit impairment at all meaning what always a hundred percent of the time in history has caused financial distress is people not paying back something they owe some form of bad debt and then when you put enough leverage on that it becomes a big problem That's. 100% the story of the history of financial problems. That is not at all related to what's happened here. So it's fascinating that three pretty good-sized banks have gone down and none of their customers who owed them money stopped paying it. All that happened is essentially a funding gap. That They ended up having more assets than liabilities, yet as customers withdrew deposits, They ended up without the liquidity to run their bank, and they were totally ill-prepared for the idea of interest rates flying higher as they have.
0: So then should the average American who banks at Bank of America or Truist or Capital One, do they need to be concerned at all about the money that's sitting in their bank account? Uh, And do they need to be concerned about maybe the next three years of, of America's banking health? Well, the
1: answer is no, but for a couple of different reasons. For one thing, you used Bank of America as an example where Bank, ironically enough, post-financial crisis and post the Dodd-Frank legislation that passed during the Obama years, um, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, these big four behemoth banks, what we called too big to fail, and I think people meant that previously as Mm -hmm. a pejorative, not as a good thing um these four have all benefited they've all gained more deposits and of course uh first republic uh, was sold to jp morgan who was one of the only banks that had the size and liquidity and capacity to to uh buy first republic and allow that transaction to go without any loss to depositors whatsoever and without having to um go to any kind of a bailout mode and so No, those depositors are in a better position than they were, those banks are healthier. But do I think that the whole incident is a little bit of a reminder that in a fractional reserve banking system, if confidence goes away, a bank can go away. Hmm. And that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We don't have a lot of banking uh, failures in our country. It's a pretty rare event, and that's a good thing. But, of course, when a bank can lend out more than it brings in in deposits, if enough people were to ask for deposits back all at once, there's a risk to that. And so um, I think that there are certain things that we need to do to uh, always make sure we have a stable, healthy banking system. Uh, But I really do think that there were some mistakes made by these three particular banks.
0: Hmm. So with the close of First Republic Bank and JPMorgan Chase kind of stepping in there, what are your thoughts on how that shook out and the federal government's role in that? Was that the best solution? And how, even though JPMorgan Chase took on so much of that responsibility, how much so on the hook are American taxpayers still, if at all, in the way that that shook out?
1: Well, if you're not talking about Silicon Valley and we're only talking about First Republic, I am pretty sure that there was no way it could have been done better Mm. for limiting exposure to taxpayers. Now, remember, when we say taxpayers, there is a difference between taxpayers actually incurring a loss because the Treasury Department um, comes in and has to extend capital and the FDIC, which, yeah, indirectly taxpayers are exposed. It's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, but it's funded by uh, an insurance fund that the FDIC pays for via um, premiums from banks. Now, taxpayers are still customers of banks, so there's indirect exposure, but that's the risk that exists within the banking system. and. All the stockholders of First Republic were wiped out. They got zero. The bondholders were wiped out. They got zero. All the depositors became depositors of J.P. Morgan. So there's no loss there to taxpayers on the deposit money whatsoever. But then what happens is, uh, J.P. Morgan wipes this out, takes on the deposits. Now, how are they in any better of a position than First Republic? They, their assets were worth more than liabilities. And J.P. Morgan has the ability to ride it out where First Republic didn't. But technically, you have to have some equity and, and your own capital, not just the deposit money on top. So they were going to be, by doing this, undercapitalized So what they did is a loss-sharing agreement with FDIC, where if there are any losses on some of the um, loans that are in this First Republic book, then FDIC would have some exposure. Now, I don't think there will be. And um, if there are, I think it's gonna be minimal. But up to, at the very most, 13 billion, which again, I think it's not gonna be anywhere near that. But remember, they lost over 20 billion by backing the deposits, of Silicon Valley Bank, and First Republic's much bigger than Silicon Valley. So I think that this was done as um, a very good solution relative to other options, uh, but there's some complexity to it that is a little bit difficult for people to grasp, and I get that. Ultimately, J.P. Morgan um, helped the, quite a bit here. But they also got bigger. And a lot of people don't like the idea of the big banks getting bigger still.
0: Yeah. Well, and I want to I wanna dive a little bit deeper into another issue related to JP Morgan Chase in just a few minutes here. Uh, but I do want to get your thoughts on Federal Reserve hiking interest rates, what we've seen from them. Of course, um, they've just raised interest rates again to just over 5%. You recently said on Fox Business that the Fed has hurt economic growth. Unpack that a little bit. What do you mean?
1: Oh, I think that they've done unbelievable harm. Uh, We could work backwards. I mean, the most recent are these bank failures themselves, where I believe you had banks that believed the Fed. The Fed said at the beginning of 2022, where the the interest rate was at 0%, they had left it there way too low, way too long. We were well, well, well past the emergency COVID moment of March 2020. And 25 months later, they still have the interest rate at 0% and said, we plan to be at 1.5% at the end of the year. They went to 5%. -hmm. They raised rates more than triple what they said they were going to. So while I still believe Silicon Valley made poor decisions and some of these banks' risk mitigation efforts failed, it's a little difficult to tell the banks, how dare you believe the Fed, and what they say they're going to do. The Fed has been using something called forward guidance as a policy tool for over 20 years, where they essentially try to create a monetary outcome by announcing it ahead of time to allow financial markets to price it in. Well, that's what they did, but then they moved the ball and um, it it basically First Republic lent out a ton of money to really good borrowers, high quality, ultra high net worth people at two to 3%, but then now the rates have gone up to over five and First Republic takes a, a hit to the value of those loans, even though those loans are still paying and performing. So I think the Fed is responsible for how they've distorted financial markets with their use of the interest rate either tightening way too quickly and way too high, or before that, being um, too low for too long. But if you take one step back further, this is the bigger point I would make, that post-financial crisis, there were a lot of emergency things going on, some of which I support, some of which I don't, but it's, I'm not as critical of what happens in the middle of a real emergency. Mm. But when you leave the interest rate at zero for seven years, and effectively really 10 years, they, they barely raised it at all after that, um, you allow uh, an incentive to not build new technologies, new factories, new plants, but just simply to lever up pre existing assets. People can get a great return by just continuing to invest in what they already have available in the economy. And what we need is growth. We need new invention, new products and services. The Fed allows certain companies to stay in business that should go away. Mm -hmm. With a 0% interest rate, they can kind of live to fight another day, but really that capital could be resourced in a much more useful way if we had a more honest uh, uh, Fed funds rate and a cost of capital in our economy. So the Fed is facilitating what we call zombie companies to stay stay around, uh, which basically keeps capital in a less attractive, less efficient, less resourceful use when we could be stimulating growth by moving to a better use.
0: Mm, this is fascinating. Thank you for breaking that down. Uh, let's go ahead and, and loop back to JPMorgan Chase. You, um, you have sent uh, a letter, a request to J.P. Morgan Chase, you're a shareholder there, and you sent them a proposed resolution earlier this year uh, calling for evaluation of the company's discrimination policies. You wrote about this in a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal. What discrimination policies do you believe that JP Morgan Chase is engaged in?
1: Well, one thing I am very willing to say is it's entirely possible they're not. And mm-hmm. I would give them the benefit of the doubt. But my point is that there's enough prima facie evidence that they've been debanking, closing bank accounts, not lending to or taking deposits from either certain conservative political organizations or certain religious or religious liberty organizations that my suggestion is that they run a process to evaluate, um, even if they don't have a policy at the company level, are there local and regional things happening that are resulting in discrimination? Now, I strongly suspect it is happening. One incident here could have an explanation. Maybe a second one there could be a coincidence but there's enough volume of things that makes it look like they're violating their own policy against religious and political discrimination. But all I did is ask them to run a a process to investigate if there may be things happening, not at the Park Avenue level, but down at the local, regional level that need to be addressed, just as um, if they were discriminating on the basis of race or sex or gender, you know, th- those things would um, not be tolerated. Let's make sure it's not happening with religious and political discrimination. Well, they refuse to put it on the docket, and I'm a sizable shareholder in the firm, and of course manage significantly more amounts of the shares on behalf of clients as well. And um, yet, there was no basis for them turning down my request, not to do what I asked, but to just put it on the agenda of the shareholder meeting to put it to a vote. It's one of my rights as a shareholder. I appealed to the SEC, and the SEC sometimes can be even more woke and problematic than some of these companies, and the SEC ruled in our favor. They they agreed with my attorneys that there was no basis for J.P. Morgan to not allow this on their shareholder um, agenda. So at the JP Morgan Share Annual Shareholder Meeting, which is on May the 16th, uh, it's in their docket in the agenda now. My whole case is in the written agenda, and there will be a vote. And there's a lot of other shareholder resolutions, usually from far-left organizations. The Sierra Club always does a bunch of wacky environmental stuff and whatnot. But what I don't understand is why J.P. Morgan would oppose the resolution when I'm not coming in saying you are discriminating, and I'm not saying please stop doing this. I'm saying there's enough evidence that may be happening, let's get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. And if it isn't happening, you're going to be vindicated. And if it is happening, it gives everybody an opportunity to cure it, to fix it so that we can maximize profits, eliminate biases, and basically be a better run company on behalf of us, the owners of the company. So that's what the endeavor was. Uh, uh, Really the irony is, if they had accepted to put my proposal on, I don't think anyone would have really heard about it. But by turning it down and having the SEC rule in our favor, it really put a lot of press and attention on it. And if nothing else, um, it's forced the C-suite at J.P. Morgan to interact with us. And um, I think they're now a lot more aware than they were a few months ago that there are people like us out there who do not want them debanking people because of their politics or their religion.
0: So if shareholders vote and say, yes, this is something we wanna look into, what would the timeline be? How how long would we get final word on, these are the results of, of what they found as they've looked into this?
1: Yeah, there'd be a a certain degree of flexibility on that. Um, I mean, we'd be asking for it in less than a year, but there's no reason it would need to take that long. Um, Part of it would depend on how cooperative they were. Once the shareholders approved the resolution, how vigilant would management be at making sure it was done right? Um, So I don't know exactly how long it would take. I would imagine for a company of their size and complexity, um, you wouldn't want it done in less than a few months, and, and it, there's no reason it would need to take more than a year. So let's put that somewhere between six and nine months.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to be following this as it moves forward. But, uh, David, before we let you go, I want to ask you, is there a common sense piece of financial advice that you would give Americans that you think most Americans don't necessarily understand?
1: Yeah, as far as their own personal finances, not... Yeah. not macroeconomically or governmentally or whatnot. Yeah, you know, this isn't very complicated, but I don't think most people understand it. Um, I I volunteer to teach economics to a local Christian high school in Newport Beach, California that I helped to start. Mm. And I tell these kids P equals W, excuse me, W equals P minus C. W equals P minus C. Wealth equals production minus consumption. And I don't think it's any more complicated than that, um, that we need to view wealth not as dollars. Uh, you know, There are countries that have far more units of currency than ours does that are nowhere near as wealthy. Wealth is the production of goods and services that meet the needs of humanity, that enhance the quality of our lives. And the more we are producing relative to what we're consuming, the wealthier we become. So for people's own individual lives, that is equally true, just as true as it is for countries or whole societies. And I think people that focus on greater production, we're living in a time that has a very low view of work. People wanting to you know, basically work from home all the time, work three or four days a week, complain about retirement extension, uh, the the whole issue in France around extending their, you know, version of social security. Uh, A lot of people didn't return to work after COVID. Wealth equals production minus consumption. And I think it's the number one most important financial truism in our lives. Mm.
0: Excellent. Mr. David Bonson, thank you so much for your time. We encourage everyone uh, to follow your work. (laughs) It's not hard to find. You have uh, an impressive presence across so many news outlets, and uh, we really appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed being with you. And with that, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Daily Skill Podcast. If you haven't gotten the chance, be sure to check out our evening show right here in this same podcast feed where we bring you the top news of the day. Also, make sure to subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. And take just a moment to leave us your feedback and give us a five-star rating and review. And we'll see you right back here at 5 p.m. for our top news edition.
1: The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation.